Today's show is brought to you by Laser Away. Labor of Love listeners can save up to 75% on laser services at Laser Away. Go to laserawaycom love now to schedule your free consultation. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of realsimple.com. I get dozens of books in the mail every single day, and most of them end up piled on my desk unread until they migrate over to our office's giveaway table. But recently a book caught my eye, or rather its back cover did. There, in a very big font, it read, This book is for people who have been through some shit, or have watched someone go through it. This is for people who aren't sure if they're saying or doing the right thing. You're not. Nobody is. This is for people who have had their life turned upside down and just learned to live that way. For people who have laughed at a funeral or cried in a grocery store. This is for everyone who wondered what exactly they're supposed to be doing with their one wild and precious life. I don't actually have the answer, but if you find out, will you text me? This quote comes from a new memoir by Nora McInerney Permort. It's called... It's okay to laugh and crying is cool too. It's about a time in the recent past when Nora, after falling hard for Aaron Permort, then had to watch him die from stage four brain cancer at age 35. And if that isn't uplifting enough for you, the book is also about Nora losing her father and having a miscarriage at the same time. Somehow out of this shitstorm of pain and loss, Nora has managed to write an unflinching and hilarious book about marriage and cancer, single motherhood, and her attempts to assemble a functional life without Aaron. Nora, I'd like to welcome you to the labor of love today. Thank you for having me. So going to that quote that I just read that's on the back book jacket of your book, in that quote, you quote the poet Mary Oliver, who was a very famous poem about what we're all supposed to be finding in our lives. And and you write about how that poem has always stressed you out. Yeah. I mean, maybe it hasn't always stressed me out, but the more I thought about it, the more it stressed me out. Because I think you can read poetry, or if you're like most Americans, you can read a Mary Oliver quote on Pinterest. Um <laughs> Honestly, I think that's how she's best known. And I bet she doesn't even know what Pinterest is because she's in a forest somewhere, like foraging for morel mushrooms and like writing poetry and making poetry, like writing it down, like with a pen, probably like a fountain pen, a feather. Uh, But you can read something like that. uh, And, you know, the line that everybody knows and has pinned is, you know, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. And you read that and you're like, yeah. And then you look around yourself and you're like, fuck, I'm in a cubicle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Like, I'm not doing anything. And that's kind of how it felt to me. It felt like, you know, a beautiful and true thing that I was not actually doing, even if I, no matter how many times I pinned it, no matter how many times I liked it on Instagram, I was not ever doing anything with my one wild and precious life. And the more you think about it, the more stressful that can get. Like you get one life. What will you do with it? (laughs) And the answer to me was like, you know, whatever. 
Well, that was you in your 20s. Let's, right. you know, yeah, you in my 20s. Yes. That's you in your 20s. Obviously, as your 20s progressed, you fell in love with your husband, Aaron. And then you had to watch him suffer through some pretty excruciating treatments. And ultimately, he died of brain cancer at age 35. What does the quote mean to you in light of that? <sighs> to me, the most important thing that you can do, which always sounded too simple to be true, uh, but is really to give yourself to somebody and let yourself really be seen by somebody. The best thing that I've done is love Aaron, but without, without a doubt, Aaron gave me myself, who I am now, who is a person I actually like for the first time in my 33 years on earth. He gave me our son and he gave me just the best kind of love you can ever hope for, which is one where you really just get to like be yourself and like find yourself, but not in one of those dumb ways where people are like, oh, I married my best friend. Cause like, I don't believe in that. Like you cannot marry your best friend. Like you better have a fucking real best friend. <laughs> um, like who are your actual friends? Like there's no way you can spend all your time with just your husband. Come on. If you do I like people who are like, yes, I do. I'm like, good for you. You're lying to yourself and to me. Um, <laughs> but really, you know, I, I think it used to mean, I used to, I used to hear that quote from Mary Oliver or read that quote from Mary Oliver and think like, wow, I better do something really big. And I better run away to like a forest and make something real. Like, what am I doing working in like marketing and like, you know, making like Facebook ads and things like that. And, you know, I really think that it's more just about doing whatever you do and whatever you choose to do with like great love and having like having that be like a part of your life and letting that be a part of your life. So I have to say that in general, I don't, I don't really believe in the idea that each of us has one, you know, soulmate or the one. No, of course not. But I have to say that the way you described your courtship and romance and marriage to Aaron did kind of convince me that for some people, you two being one of those couples, that that you really had found something quite unique and beautiful. And I wondered for the listeners who haven't read the book yet, if you could just talk a little bit about your relationship and what brought you to that place where you were open to being with yeah. Aaron. Oh God. First, you've got to kiss a lot of DJs, you know, or <laughs> like aspiring photographers or just guys who won't call you their girlfriend before you can meet one decent human. <laughs> <laughs> the story of my 20s, I literally was so burned out and tired, like just like tired of like trying. And cause it was never, dating was never like easy for me. I was just like, be my boyfriend, like anyone, which is so weird. Cause I look back, I'm like, Nora, you were like smart and pretty and cool. Why were you swinging solo? <laughs> um, and I can't tell you why, but Aaron was special. I still don't believe that there's only one person for you, but I think that every person that you love gives you something completely different. And what Aaron and I had was magical because it happened and it wasn't 
like a process and it wasn't a negotiation and it wasn't a convincing. We met at, you know, an art gallery in Minneapolis and he walked up to me and a group of my friends and said to me, you're Nora McInerney. And I was like, I think you're a guy from the internet that I follow. And we just talked all night. He invited me out with his friends and I got there and there were literally like, I just said literally twice. Ick. <laughs> there, were, there was a pack of people at his table and I was thinking, oh, he just invited everyone tonight. And he stood up at this crowded table full of friends and made room for my cousin and I who had come and, you know, and talked to me the whole night. And every day after that, we just talked or saw each other and we're just together. It was just something that was like decided without either of us discussing it. And I remember trying to have a conversation with him. We'd been like dating for a couple weeks. And I was like, so like, you know, are you seeing anyone else? And he looked at me like, what kind of shit bags have you been dating? Like who else, who else would I possibly be seeing? We spend every day together. I was like, I don't know what is wrong with me. Why am I trying to make this difficult? And it was just because to me, relationships had always been work and it always been kind of just bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And if you want to read how bad, just, yeah. you know, get a copy of this book. And I had like, certainly I I've loved some boys who were worth it and who taught me things, but it's like relationships were just never easy. And things with Aaron were easy because we just liked each other. Like we just liked each other and then we loved each other, but we always liked each other and were so nice to each other. And I really think that like that is what a good marriage is or a good relationship is just like being nice to the other person. <laughs> like he was always so nice to me. Did you know that the average woman will spend over $10,000 on razors and 72 days shaving in her lifetime? Good thing our friends at Laser Away have us and our bodies covered. As the nation's top laser hair removal and aesthetic experts, Laser Away offers the most advanced cutting-edge technology to offer dramatic, permanent results in just a few treatments. Laser Away's treatments are non-invasive, fast, permanent, and can treat all skin tones, leaving you hair-free, carefree, and ready for that last-minute date or beach getaway. Shave time, not your legs. Get up to 75% off laser services and schedule your free consultation today by going to laserawaycom love. That's laserawaycom love. How soon after meeting and falling in love did Aaron get his cancer diagnosis? It was basically a year, like a year. So we'd been dating a year. I'd just moved into his house and the phone rang and I was at work and it was a friend of his calling from his cell phone to ask if Aaron had ever had a seizure. And of course the answer was like, no, what are you talking about? Because I'd assumed that he was sort of joking. I don't know. It's just so outlandish for it's such an outlandish thing to happen on like on Monday at noon. But Aaron had had two seizures at work and he was in an ambulance and they needed to know where to take him. And they thought I was a good person to ask. And I was like, I have never even heard of a hospital, let alone selected one for somebody. But my coworker was very confident in in where he should go. And that was just the day that our lives changed. But it just doesn't, even when you're in like a life-changing moment, it just never feels like that. Your brain can like make anything into something else. And my brain was like, this is weird. Can't wait to get home tonight and, you know, 
watch uh, The Wire on HBO and pretend like this never happened. Right. When did you two start talking about getting married? You know, very casually on our first date, we had had like one of those first dates. It's like six hours long. And we were like, okay, like how many kids do you want? Would you be a stay-at-home mom? No. Okay. I would be a stay-at-home dad. He's very, he's like very adamant about that. I was like, I would never, you can have that role. Good for you. You know, I wanted four kids. He wanted two. We settled on three, but I knew I would trick him into a fourth later. (laughs) And it was just like something we talked about like we went to a wedding a couple months into our relationship and it was just like we were talking about like what we would do at our wedding and when we wanted to get married and you know I was like well maybe like the next summer or but it just and I was like oh also I think engagement rings are dumb don't get me one like what a waste of money and also it's so weird for you to like claim me in that way so the night that he had a seizure we were talking in his hospital bed. And he was like, you shouldn't marry me. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to die. Probably this is, you know, this is probably it. And I was like, dude, I'm going to marry the hell out of you as soon as we are out of here. So I basically proposed to him. We didn't do rings and we got married a month after that. At what point did you decide that you were going to have a baby with Aaron. We decided, I mean, in again, like an important thing to say here is that we did not ask any questions about his cancer other than that we knew it was stage four brain cancer and that was bad. I did, I Googled it once and then never again. We told his doctors that we never wanted to know how much time he had and that we wanted to live normally. And I had asked his doctors before. Well, why, he started- did, why did you decide to do that? I mean, that's, that's a radical decision and one that would make, a, I think, most people so uncomfortable with that not knowing. God, what, I think, I think, how would you want to know? You know, it's what would you do with that information that would make it better? Suffer. <laughs> right. Yeah, nothing. It's like you want to live your one wild and precious life with a timer running. Right. <laughs> no, we don't. And so and you it, asked yourself, what would Mary Oliver do? Right. And I was then, like, she would be like, fuck this. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I, we'd, we'd had that realization pretty quickly. And Aaron was like, I don't want to know this shit. And I was like, I agree, dude, this is not fun. And the first thing that people say to you when you like, now maybe the first thing, it's one of the first things people will just ask you things which I love because it's like sort of their way of like processing through it and also like sort of separating themselves from potential tragedy. But they want to know like, what is the prognosis? I'm like, okay, girl, you heard that word on Grey's Anatomy once. Like you can just say like what you mean, which is like, when is he going to die? Um, <laughs> like, like prognosis. What are you talking about? <laughs> like I've never said that word with like a straight face, like mm, the prognosis. Like we were not medical students. I was an English major. We have no business saying the word prognosis. America. So we, we didn't want to know that kind of stuff. And so we didn't. And so I'd asked Aaron's doctor, you know, um, Hey, like, you know, if we want to have kids someday, should we be like putting that, like, should we, should we like be putting sperm somewhere? I didn't even have like a vocabulary for it. I still kind of don't. And his doctor was like, well, we don't really recommend having a baby. And what she was getting at was, 
Aaron's going to die. And like, why would you want to have a baby? And I was like, okay, but like, where would we, like, how would we do this? Like we should do it before he does treatment. And she was like, yep, I guess. So he had to go to a strip mall and like, you know, early, early morning and just stand in a closet mm-hmm. and thing with some used magazines. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, dude, but I love you. Our future children. Thank you. <laughs> and um, so it was like, it was there. The possibility was there, but you know, we really had no idea what the future held. And to me, you know, I wanted to do it. I also didn't feel like, you know, a huge, a huge rush, which is so odd. I'm like, I can't believe that I wasn't trying to like do this immediately, but it took a few months for us to really be serious about it. And I think it's because we still felt so young. I got married. I was like 28 and I was like, oof, wonder if I'm old enough to make this decision. You know, my parents had like three children by the time they were 28. They were like, from the Midwest. And we went to Disney World with our niece and nephew. And we were like, this is what we want. We we have to do this. And we went back to um, the strip mall. We went back to, <laughs> we cashed in, cashed, <laughs> cashed in at the strip mall. And we went to like see that fertility specialist who had hooked us up with the strip mall in the beginning, who had totally freaked us out with all the science talk. And just like, he was like, well, you know, IVF is really more of a you know, blah, blah, blah. And here's what it costs. It costs like, you know, your entire future. Um, and we went back and I seriously said to him, I was like, is there an option that's like less money? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, we can just basically put it in you. I was like, do that. <laughs> like, we'll take that one. He was like, the odds are lower. I was like, yeah, but you know, we're poor. So we'll do, we'll do that. And that's what we did. And it worked and we had a baby. So you delivered your son, Ralph, while Aaron was going through chemo. Yeah. And we, like, I have to say too, like we got pregnant when things were, you know, like it was three months after we were married and he was doing so well, like he was doing so well that we would forget he was sick. Like his chemo was a pill, you know, his brain surgery scarred, healed. He was going to work every day like I was, like things were really normal. We felt like normal people. And very, very quickly in the eighth month of my pregnancy, that changed and his brain tumor was back and it needed to be removed surgically immediately. And he needed to start a more aggressive chemotherapy. So he had brain surgery the day after Christmas. Ralph was born January 22nd. And the week before Ralph was born in the same hospital that Aaron did all of his stuff at, his dad was hospitalized for three days doing this crazy chemo where they, you know, had to lay him up in a hospital bed for 48 hours to recover from it. So our lives changed really, really quickly before Ralph was born. Prior to that, it was really like he had this brain surgery and we got married and things were so good and normal that cancer was pretty much just an afterthought. You suffered the loss of Aaron and the loss of your father, as well as a miscarriage all within how long of each other? I had a miscarriage on October 3rd, and I think my dad died October 8th, and then Aaron died November 25th. So you decided that soon after that you wanted to write about this, you'd been keeping a blog through Aaron's treatment called My Husband's Tumor. Mm-hmm. You wrote an essay recently that talks about how you were a little bit paralyzed about actually writing this book about all of this loss, and that the thing that got you moving and sort of un, undid your writer's block was 
seeing Amy Schumer's movie, the Amy Schumer's movie Trainwreck. Yep. How did that work? Um, oh God. So I was born with like a case of imposter syndrome. Like I untreated, went undiagnosed for years. Like I'm, I'm very well acquainted with imposter syndrome, but if for our listeners who aren't, can you describe what it is? Just think that you are a huge fraud and you're the only person who's noticed it so far, but just everyone's about to find out. Like I was probably born and was like, oh my God, am I even a baby? Like, (laughs) oh God, what if everyone finds out I'm really just like a, a a little, a little rat wearing a people costume. Um, so it's great. It's super healthy and fun. And I had, you know, sold this book to like the, one of the best publishers in the world, Harper Collins and Julia Chaffetz at Day Street was editing it. And she's like a real power lady and super smart. And I mean, I, I have, I, have I have the ability to say things like, oh, and my agent. And I still was like, oh, fuck, I've never written a book. And they're going to know that. I mean, they knew that. Duh. They're going to find out I'm a dummy and I, I blah, 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 everything's going to fall apart and no one's going to read this book. And I've made a huge mistake. And I basically just had that on repeat in my head for months. And then my sister noticed that I didn't do a lot other than sit and attempt to write. And that was not like, you know, the most healthy social life for me last summer. And she took me out. We had a sister night to this movie theater where they serve you wine in the movie theater. It's brilliant. And we got a little drunk and watched Trainwreck. And I was just staring at the screen like, oh gosh, look at, like, look at Amy Schumer. She's basically my age. And she just makes things for people to react to. And some people love them and some people hate them. And she does it and she makes them and it's awesome. And I can do that. I should probably go home and write this book. And I felt for the first time like I was capable of doing it. And I was. And that's the stuff that I wrote after that is the stuff that ended up in the book. And that helped the book actually be a sad, funny book. And not just a sad sad book. (laughs) And that's just a sad book that you're like, please don't make me read this book. And plenty of people when I'm like, oh yeah, I wrote a book about my husband and my dad dying are like, oh, I'd really like to not read that. And I'm like, but it's funny. (laughs) After Aaron died, you started an organization called Still Kicking, whose goal is to quote, help awesome people get through awful things. (laughs) I love that tagline. Can you tell me a little bit about the organization and, and who you reach out to? Yeah, so our organization is still kicking. No G, stillkicking.co because .com is owned by like some old dude with a bluegrass band who wouldn't sell me the URL. <laughs> Not better. But it's based on this thrift store t-shirt that my husband was wearing the day that he had a seizure that he bought in high school and wore in ironic good health. And even we thought it was so funny that he was wearing in the hospital, like, haha, you had a seizure <laughs> and you're wearing a still kicking shirt. Let's mm-hmm. get out of here. And we had sold the t-shirt when he was sick and given the money at first to brain cancer research. But during this whole experiment, and we'd sold it as like, you know, not as an organization, we'd sold it through another website, Cotton Bureau, who are amazing. But through this whole experience, I know that when bad things happen, it's it's very isolating and it's hard for people to see you and everybody deserves to have their story be told to have agency over their story to not just be a sad thing that people whisper about and um that other people 
really want to help. They just don't know what to do. So every month we choose a person who's going through something and, you know, our past, you know, heroes, as we call them, have, you know, survived sexual assault or living with ALS or Parkinson's or have survived, you know, the death of a family member, just these huge life altering things. And we tell their story with respect and without pity uh, because they're human stories. These things happen to all of us. And we give them the money from um, our replica still kicking shirts and apparel and from donation-based workouts that we host with gyms around the country. So it's my way of really, you know, honoring Aaron's spirit. I think like that's a pretty weird, happy accent that he was wearing that shirt at the time and that. I'm able to have this organization that isn't about him and isn't about me, but is about these two words that anybody can see themselves in. And that I have the ability to rally other people around humans that they'll never meet. And that you really can do something small, buy a shirt, show up for a workout, make a little donation and make a huge difference in somebody's life and help them be seen and you know, hopefully that helps other people feel more brave when a bad things happen, a bad thing happens to them because it's going to. (laughs) You and Aaron wrote his obituary together before he died. And in it, he references himself as Spider-Man. And the obituary ends with, he is survived by first wife, Gwen Stefani, current wife, Nora, and their son, Ralph, who will grow up to avenge his father's untimely death. That obituary went viral. I know I was sent it at the time that it appeared and didn't make the connection until I read your book. Why do you think people reacted so strongly to the obituary and what was it like to write it together? I don't know why people reacted so strongly to it. I think, you know, it was really meant for our friends and family as like, you know, a little wink to them because it was so Aaron and Aaron and I did write together. We wrote it his first night of hospice because I didn't want to do anything without like anything that told his story without his input. Like the way we're remembered is important. And I think we're just too afraid to talk about it. And we don't want to like, you know, make someone else uncomfortable. Aaron and I had spent three years of our marriage talking about uncomfortable things and I made him sit down and tell me like, what's the music you want for your funeral? How do you want this funeral to go? And he's like, funny, you should ask. I already made a file because I knew you would pick bad songs. I'm like, great. Like, <laughs> I was like, actually, I was going to choose Bone Thugs and Harmony Crossroads. So joke's on you. Um, and, uh, and we sat down and wrote his obituary and we laughed and we cried and we were like, there's no way they'll publish this, but they did. So fun fact, I don't think they fact check obituary. So go ahead and write yours tonight and write whatever the hell you want. Nora McInerney Permort is the author of the new memoir, It's Okay to Laugh and Crying is Cool Too. Nora, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. I'm sorry that my two last names are like just a terrible combination for pronouncing. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. 
You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. Thank you.